This is Tag Box Talk, and this is Horse Stories with a Purpose. Who are we? We are equine educators, but we are owners. We are judges. We are competitors. We are coaches. We are volunteers. We are moms. We are horse owners just like you, and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose. Welcome to Extension Horse's Tack Box Talk Series, Horse Stories with a Purpose. I'm Dr. Chris Heine with Oklahoma State University, and today we're going to be talking about end-of-life decisions, um, when we need to make them, and some special considerations that horse owners need to know about that. And so joining me today from Minnesota is Dr. Krishona Martinson. Hello. So she's going to be sharing stories about Snowy and Bailey. And we also have from Purdue University, Dr. Colleen Brady. Hello. And Colleen is going to be talking to us about um, uh, Serena, which Colleen, Serena was uh, your horse when you were a teenager. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I actually got her when I was in high school. So I was 17 years old or or so. And she was my first young horse. She was a two-year-old when we got her. And she was also my first registered horse. So there was some investment that you made into purchasing that horse as a young girl. Absolutely, especially relative previous to that. You know, we had just had pretty inexpensive horses. So, but yet she was a big, big decision to get a mare and a registered mare. If you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to Serena? Sure. Um, Actually, I grew up in a very rural part of Wisconsin. It was um, out in the middle of the country. And a lot of people had their farm dogs running, just ran loose all day. It's very common. Everybody does it. Um, But sometimes what would happen is the dogs would gather up in packs and um, chase animals. And it just so happened that one day a group of those dogs had gathered up and they decided to chase animals on our place and they chased Um, our sheep and uh, Serena was in a pasture um, and she ended up getting chased um, through a fence and she fractured one of her hind legs. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it was pretty traumatic. She was only two. Uh, We had the vet come out and he took a look at her and um, it was not displaced. And and just to note, this was a long time ago. I'm I'm well past my teenagers at uh, this point. It wasn't really going to make sense to try to take her to a vet hospital. But because the fracture didn't displace, um, the vet thought we could try to stabilize it. And if we limited her activity, um, we could see if maybe we could pull her, pull her through the injury. So uh, how long then were you treating her before you decided that? The- we, were, we were only treating her for a couple of weeks um, because part of it was she had to be uh, restricted in terms of her activity. And she was just doing really, really poorly with being restricted as a, as a young horse. Um, she started to get, um, she couldn't even be hand-walked, bouncing around the stall, kicking, that sort of thing. And, and we made the decision that um, it, there probably wasn't going to be a positive outcome to this. And so ended up uh, making the decision to have her use nice simply because um, she couldn't support uh, the treatment that needed to happen, the behaviors to have a good treatment outcome. And even if we had been able to manage that um, with such a young horse, it was fairly low expectations of her being able to continue uh, to be um, 
a riding horse or anything after that injury. Gotcha. So at 17, um, was that your decision? Did, did your parents guide you or, I mean, that's a um, lot for a teenage girl with her very yeah. first special horse. Um, it was definitely a family decision, um, especially with my mom. We spent a lot of time uh, talking about it and consulting with the veterinarian. Um, took his advice a lot into what we thought we should do. And one thing we really thought about a lot and discussed a lot was even if we could get her through these few weeks um, to heal the injury, then what happens next? You know, she's a two-year-old. What kind of life is she going to leave? Lead? What, what can happen with her? How much restriction is she going to be have to be for the rest of her life? What are the possibilities of something like this, you know, of it being fragile and refracturing her or something like that. So, um, but our veterinarian was extremely helpful in making the decision. So you worked with them and family discussion to kind of yes. come, come to terms. Yep. Well, Krishona, would you like to tell us the, the story that you had to go through with Snowy and Bailey? Sure. So um, Snowy was a, a POA pony that my daughter um, showed in speed events. Um, she was older and her probably mid-20s. She wasn't registered as most ponies aren't, so it's kind of hard to know exactly, but she was in her mid-20s. And looking back, there were a few things that probably pointed towards some issues, but essentially she was seemingly healthy one day and then in a full-blown colic that would not resolve itself the next day. Um, and that you know, led to some very challenging decisions because you also have a little girl. I think my daughter was six, seven, eight at the time. Um, so you not only have parents, but a young child that doesn't understand, you know, what colic is and the options for a very senior pony at that point. Um, so that was snowy. On the flip side, I look back and I was incredibly fortunate that the very first horse my parents bought for me, they did the um, classic non-horsey parent mistakes of buying their seven-year-old daughter an unbroke two-year-old quarter horse mare because we could learn and grow together which um, our story turned out very well and we did and I had um, old Bailey for 32 years um, so I was very fortunate to own that mare for a very long time. 32 um, years so that's longer than you've been married correct? Yes she was the longest part of my life other than my parents and my brother Wow. Yes, that mare went everywhere with me, and she was an excellent horse. I think we maybe had to call the veterinarian one time. Um, so, you know, inc in incredibly lucky for just a very easy-keeping, healthy horse, um, and a horse that I kept. And actually, the horse I compete on now is her granddaughter. Um, but, you know, once Bailey hit her upper 20s, so probably 27, 28, she became a very hard keeper. But up until that point in her life, she was a very healthy and easy keeper. And once she hit her 30s, no matter how much food I fed her, and you know we are kind of educated on horse nutrition and what horses need, um, I just couldn't get her body condition score above a three. Um, and, it, and, it, and it was challenging um, to manage her. And we live in Minnesota, and the winters can be very harsh and very cold and very slippery. And she had become arthritic. And we knew we had to make the decision and we probably delayed it longer than we should for her health. But of course, we always think of our feelings. Um, but when Snowy died, we made the difficult decision um, to also euthanize Bailey at the same time because there are some just logistical things you have to do once you de 
once you euthanize a large animal that makes having it done um, together on the same day. Emotionally, that was kind of a train wreck, um, but uh, it, you know, it made sense. It, it happened in November, so in Minnesota, we're still teetering on the horrible winter weather, um, but it was a decision we knew we had to make just because of how frail and thin and um, just kind of arthritic Bailey had become. And looking back, I think people would love to have 32 years with the horse. So we we're very fortunate that she was so healthy and, um, you know, vibrant up until the end. So I think that's important, that really, really hard decision on how do you know when? Um, and you had said that maybe that decision should have been earlier with Bailey, you know, how thin is too thin? How arthritic is too arthritic? How do you make that judgment essentially when it ultimately is about taking something's life? How do you, how do you, do you have any advice or tips about when, when it's correct? Yeah, you know, I think that that is a highly personal and individualized decision, but Bailey could no longer lay down and stand back up because she was so arthritic. And we all know that it's part of horses being healthy and comfort, comfortable, they do need to lay down at times. Um, and with the ice and the snow, we knew. Um, also, I was literally spending hundreds of dollars trying to feed her, and no matter what I fed her, and I even had her on an old horse trial that was supported by industry, so they were even giving grain products, right? She was like the before and after picture that just didn't go real well. Um, she she gained a little bit of weight, but you know she was she was so skinny and so arthritic that you really have to think, you know, this isn't the life for her. Um, I also thought, you know, this horse has given me thirty two wonderful years, and the least thing I can do is make sure that she's not have to suffer through a horrible Minnesota winter. Um, it's probably different for Colleen and and you know you and and the the listeners out there, but that is what helped me make that decision was just how thin she was, no matter what science and feed we threw at her. Um, and then also the inability to lay down because I know that that is what horses need to do to stay comfortable. I think one thing that's really important, because you're right, Krishona, this is the ultimate personal decision we make when we talk about not just horses, but any, you know, our dogs, any animals that we get uh, emotionally at too but the thing I always think about too and when I'm talking to people is to remember that horses live in the moment they live in today you know if a horse knows they're miserable and uncomfortable um, that's their life that day and if it's going to be the next day and the next day and the next day you know they can't look forward necessarily to saying well in six months I might feel better in five months I might feel better um, they just know that they're that, that they're uncomfortable that they're sore that they hurt, that they can't do what they want to do, that they're frustrated, um, all those, all those sorts of things. So, I know one of one of our vets here at Purdue, what she always tells people is, you know, watch out when for when they start to have more bad days than good days, you know. And once they start having more bad days than good days, it's probably time to really start thinking about a plan for what you're what you're going to do. Gotcha. And. Uh and I know we don't like to maybe think about it, but um, I think both both Krishona and Colleen, there's some real financial implications to care of some pre-chronic conditions. So 
I mean, I think that's fair to say we do have to, I mean, realistically, can you provide that level of care for them and still have a good outcome? And a good outcome I think is really important is can you provide a good outcome? And, and this is my, again, this is so personal. My personal belief is there are actually worse things than a humane euthanasia or a humane, uh, a humane death for a horse. And I think chronic pain is, is one of them. Um, we talk about the five freedoms and horses being able to express normal behaviors. Well, if their health is such that they can't express normal behaviors, you know, who are we really helping out by keeping them going? Is it us or is it really what's in the best interest of the horse? You know, Clean, you're absolutely right. And also, Chris, there is a financial, a true financial piece to this. So, like I said, I was spending hundreds of dollars a month feeding Old Bailey with no change. And I think, Clean, that's the critical point. There was not going to be an improvement because mm -hmm. we had spent probably years trying to, well, a, sh a short two years trying to improve it. And when you have a, a, an elderly horse that colics, you know, surgery, I mean, and our veterinarian was very clear, this pony is not a really good patient for colic surgery because the outcome isn't going to be good. The pain, the longevity compared to the expense. Um, and it's, and it's, it's you, you have to have that plan going in because in the moment it's so emotional. You have a child bawling her eyes out, but you know you cannot spend tens of thousands of dollars on a pony that most likely will not make it even through the recovery phase of the surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to have a plan as hard as it is, and you need to communicate that plan to your veterinarian because they are used to dealing with this, unfortunately, so they tend to be more pragmatic in that situation and even some good horse friends that you can mm -hmm. that can kind of help slap you back into reality and say I know that in the heat of the moment you want to max out every credit card and pay for colic surgery for this pony but we had decided years ago that that wasn't the course of action if this pony colicked but again it's incredibly difficult in the heat of the moment to stick to that plan but you for the sake of the animal I think it's the best thing. Well, and I think too, and, and I think this is really unfortunate, is that somehow we've gotten to a place that it's like people aren't comfortable saying, well, I decided to spend this much money, and once I get past that much money, then this is what I need to do. And, and we really need to get rid of that stigma because it's not fair to people. Somebody shouldn't have to feel like they have to put their entire financial well-being at risk um, to do the colic surgery, to do the more exotic test or that sort of thing just because just because we can and that's where I think it comes back to thinking about the horse and the horse's perspective and the fact that they live in the fact that they live in the moment you know a four-month recovery from colic surgery that's really hard on a horse too and there are horses that will not do well in a situation where they have they have restricted exercise and restricted feed and you know all of all of that sort of thing and and that all fits in. That all fits into making the decision. And and like you said, making a plan ahead of time because you know your horse. You know if your horse is one that could cope with the con the confinement of recovering from a lot of these serious um, things that can happen. That that may be a treatment or euthanize um, situation. That a lot of times recovery 
um, includes a lot of restrictions um, for that recovery period. And I think it's important for everybody, again, to realize, yeah, it's an individual decision and it may be on an individual animal. I mean, I don't actually have a, a horse story to share. I've been fortunate or maybe just how I've had horses. I've always sold them um, and, and got new younger horses, so I haven't followed them to that end stage. But I know in my household, um, a lot of people would think I'm crazy. I have a, a dog that just went through six months of chemo. And I was willing to spend that money on her, but I wouldn't for a cat. I mean, and that doesn't make me a terrible person. <laughs> like they're just some different personal connections. I think that uh, that you have with your animal that that is okay to have. So I'm gonna ask you guys uh, maybe some other personal questions. So how did you handle the the grief? I, I think you know different perspectives. Krishona having a an animal that was with you for. 32 years, again, longer than your regular adult relationships, longer than you've had your children. Like, so how did you deal with that? Or, and while you were grieving, how did you handle uh, your six-year-old at the same time? Do you have any tips for people on that? So I, I think that because uh, Bailey had been with me for so long, I just felt very fortunate to have had her for 32 years. So I had been preparing, you know, I think anytime a horse, you know, gets into their upper twenties, mentally you kind of start preparing for that. So I, I mean, it was very sad and I had a few couple rough days. I did have to go back to work, um, you know, the following day. And I think that's good and bad, right? I mean, it's bad that you randomly break down crying and people think that you're strange, but we're fortunate to work around people that also have animals, whether it's a horse, a dog, or a cat. And I think most of society understands the connection you have to animals. And even whether it's a show cow, right? I mean, people have those connections. Um, with my daughter, it was a little harder. We had to spend a lot of time talking about snowy, and it still kind of chokes me up a little bit. And, you know, we made her a picture book, and she wrote down her memories. And it took her several, several months before she could talk about snowy without crying. Um, we did, you know, cut the tail hair and we had a bracelet and necklace made and that made it a little bit easier. But, you know, the grief from an animal is really something that people, it's true, right? I mean, it really can be a struggle. And there are support groups for individuals. I've had friends that have found great comfort and value in support groups. Um, you know, the, the sad thing is that life goes on, right? Like Madeline had to go to school to first grade the next day. And I emailed her teacher and I said, here's the deal. And they talked about Snowy and she was hard to cry and everybody knew, but you know, life has to move on. And so you just, you know, keep thinking about the horse and remembering the horse, um, talking about it. Um, but there really is no easy way or, or there's no timeline. Um, but I think you just got to talk about it, do things that are special and remember that horse. And hopefully, you know, over time, I can tell you it does get better. I mean, it, I can now talk about it without, you know, breaking down. So it does get better over time. So Krishna, this sounds, you know, when you describe that process and, and talking about it, I mean, it doesn't sound that much different from what you would advise somebody who lost a, a human loved one. And the, and the grief process. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you know losing a person in your life is, um, you know, a, a devastation, um, but I don't think you should underestimate the devastation from losing an animal. Are they on the same plane? No, 
Um, but for some people, they're very equivalent um, sorrows and griefs that you feel, and rightfully so. I mean, I definitely can, can feel that. I think especially when you think of somebody like Madeline, too, because that may have been the first close loss mm -hmm. she had in her life, you know, as, you know, assuming, I think she still has all her grandparents or she's known and that sort of thing. So especially for a child, that can be the first devastating experience with grief in their entire life. So to, to help them learn how to handle grief and that it's normal and it's, it's okay to cry. Okay. Um, can actually be really valuable in helping them learn how to deal with grief throughout their life. You're absolutely correct, Clean. Yeah. So Colleen, do you, you recall back to your 17 year old self, how you handled it? Well, it was such a different situation than Krishona's. I hadn't had Serena anywhere near as long, so didn't have the same type of bond that, um, that you do with a horse that you've had, you know, for two years. Um, but um, I, would, I had come to the, because of the time um, as we had tried to treat, um, and, and part of it's because of my fairly pragmatic personality, um, by the time we came to the decision, I knew, I was confident even at that age that we, it really was the right decision to make. Um, so I was sad, but I was, I was sad more about what could have been. Um, this was a young horse. She had such a life in front, you know, potentially a life in front of her. Um, and for such a freak thing to have happened um, that ended, but ended that. But I, I still am really comfortable that in that situation, we made the absolute uh, right decision and that to try to... Um, keep her going any longer would not have been um, in her best interest and probably not have had um, a desirable, desirable outcome. But um, when I had my dog that I'd had for 12 years put down on the other hand, that was a different situation. <laughs> that was a 40 something year old woman sitting on the floor of the vet school, of the vet clinic crying like a, crying like Madeline was when, um, when you had snowy, snowy put down. So it always is a really, and again, a situation actually similar to Krishona's with her old horse as I'd had this dog forever, you know, but she just, we couldn't keep weight on her. She had a stroke. Um, she started having kidney failure and liver failure. You know, we had treated her with Alzheimer's medicine when she couldn't find the house anymore, you know, couldn't find the back door to come in. Um, but eventually, you know, again, probably should have done it earlier, earlier than we did, but I just couldn't quite let go. So I'm, I'm going to get us off the unhappy topics as we're all reminiscing too much and shift to uh, some real nuts and bolts practicality when it comes to horses, because it is a whole different scenario, uh, essentially dealing with the remains of a horse versus, you know, we can dig a little cemetery plot for a cat. That's pretty easy, but this is not uncomplicated. So do you guys have some tips on what to expect or how you handled the, the remains once, once they were euthanized? Yeah, Chris, that is a really important topic and it's become more important as different states, um, you know, have different guidelines or different regulations for disposing of a, of a large animal carcass. 
um, and even as more rendering restrictions have become available. I'm very fortunate that um, I live in an area where burial is a legal option. Um, so one of the, you know, so after we knew that Snowy wasn't going to make it through colic and we had a euthanizer, um, one of the, one of the, you know, we knew Old Bailey needed needed to end her life um, graciously as well. But practically speaking, it's a lot easier to hire the guy with the backhoe to come and dig two holes than it is just one. And going into winter in Minnesota, we have a real issue that once the ground freezes, burial is one of our most affordable and legal options. And in the winter months, we don't have that option because the frost is just too deep, it's just too cold. So uh, the practical aspect of it is a lot of horses in northern climates are euthanized going into winter because number one, you can physically bury them because the ground is still unfrozen. Um, and two, if you're gonna pay somebody um, you know, to dig a hole, it's a whole lot cheaper once you get them there to have them dig two holes. So we were fortunate to bury them on site. Um, and, and it worked very well for us. Yeah, I, uh, well, I haven't have a euthanasia story. When I was a kid, my, my mother's Welsh pony that she'd had forever um, died in the winter from colic, but he died in the stall and they didn't have the ability to get the heavy equipment to, to move him because you can't, right? Even though he was a Welsh pony, he's still substantial. So they ended up having to like tear apart the barn to be able to get him out of the barn and it was winter in Illinois, so there was no burial. So he had to spend all the way until spring thaw behind the barn where at least nobody looked at him, but he was with us that entire time. So these are things that are, yeah, really, you got to think ahead on these and, and the what if, if something like that does happen. Well, and I think about the example you just shared too about the stall is I used to work at a barn that we had a lot of, um, it was a breeding facility. So we had some old mares and stuff that were retired, but it was a really conscious thought when we started to be concerned about um, whether it was getting close to time and whether we'd have to make a decision or if mother nature would make the decision about, well, where are we keeping this horse? So that if she would, as we all kind of hope would happen, lay down and go to sleep and simply not wake up the next morning, are we gonna be able to get her where she needs to be, whether it's, you know, to have, sometimes I know some vet schools, you can have your horses incinerated um, or basically cremated like you would um, at, a, at a funeral parlor. And, and you can even uh, have the option to have the ashes um, if you want or, or burial. I know it used to be really common here in the Midwest to have renderers pick them up. Um, but less and less is that possible. Um, there's fewer renderers out there. And because of the use of chemical euthanasia, um, the renderers have limited ability to actually use, use the animal for uh, products and, and stuff, stuff like that. So uh, I know in Indiana, I think we might have two renderers right now to cover um, an entire state that has something in the neighborhood of 160,000 horses. So it's it gets back to what Krishona was saying about this is really a big issue. Unfortunately, we have people doing research on looking at what are other ways that we can dispose of these large animals. So, yeah, I have a, you know, thinking about that with, with the scenario the, that I gave, the, the pony died of natural causes, but if he had been euthanized and we couldn't bury him until spring 
there's some dangers of that of those remains actually being pretty poisonous to any animal that might decide to eat them. So what do you what do you do? Are there options that take care of all of that? Yeah, so Chris, that's a that's a really good um, point. We just recently started this past uh, or just recently started an equine carcass composting research project. So um, swine and poultry have been composted for years and years. Um, and if you think about swine and poultry, you have large numbers of animals on a site. Um, but of course, they're a much smaller carcass compared to a thousand pound adult horse. So we've had some success um, in composting primarily the entire horse carcass with the exception of larger bones, um, the teeth and the hooves in a seven week time period. And we'll be releasing that information as we learn more and as we kind of get through the colder winter months in Minnesota. Um, but you are right, uh, you know, a, a veterinarian, if they chemically euthanize a horse, which is an approved euthanasia um, way, uh, a method, if that carcass is somehow exposed, like for example, the owner doesn't dispose of it properly and maybe just drags it out to the backwoods, but you hear stories of that, and for example, a bald eagle eats on that carcass and dies from the chemical euthanasia, they actually the veterinarian and the horse owner are both liable. Um, so there are some real reasons why you need to properly dispose of, of any livestock carcass and your local board of animal health will have rules and regulations that are pretty individualized to each state on how that is best done and what is recommended at the state level. Because even with burial, because again, just like in Minnesota, burial is legal in Indiana, but it has to be a certain distance from water that has to be a certain depth. Um, and a lot of it is because of these concerns about, um, about contamination of the groundwater, which is basically it's a poison. I mean, that's why it's an effective way of euthanasia. Um, and so some people are actually, there are several other than chemical euthanasia, there are other AVMA, American Vet Medical Association approved methods of euthanasia that include gunshot and captive bolt. But a lot of horse owners aren't comfortable with those um, because of, you know, well, because of the blood and, and, and that sort of thing. So the, uh, it, it's really a challenge right now. Probably I would say one of the biggest challenges facing the horse industry is as we have horse populations that are getting older and older, how do we handle disposal of, of um, horses that have had to be chemically euthanized? And I, I also think, Colleen, one thing that horse owners aren't really exposed to, but other livestock species are. So I think the reason composting is and other options are more popular with poultry and swine is that they've had large hurricanes come through. And if you have a 20,000 poultry flock poultry unit be affected you have to euthanize large large number of animals at the same time mm -hmm. and even with african swine fever the the uh, pork industry is really keen on what do you do if you have to have large mass euthanasia because of a disease, out disease outbreak and i think because a lot of horse owners tend to have smaller herds of five or less um, it maybe isn't on our radar screen, but it needs to be. There are large disease issues that could wipe out an entire region, which could be a lot of five and 10 you know, head horse farms. Or with our changing climate, 
there tends to be more severe weather outbreaks consistently that could impact areas that are more densely populated with horses. So you guys are right. This hasn't really been on our radar screen, but it really needs to be. Well, and the first thing I thought about too, when you were talking about that was in terms of a larger animal. And I remember um, on the news when uh, foot and mouth broke out in, um, in Great Britain the last time, and that affects cattle. So you're looking at needing to, needing to um, euthanize large numbers of a large body mass of animals. And it was, disposal's a big issue, it's very hard. So all of our owners should probably uh, think ahead and come up with a plan way before that date, even of, uh, you know, euthanasia, we always think about it as planned, but it may not be. It may be something sudden happens and then you have uh, the remains to deal with or that you have time to think about it. But knowing whether or not it's legal to do it, do you have the tractors and the equipment? Do you know somebody that has it? I mean, those just aren't factors for, like I said, our dogs and cats. So really want people to look into the, the the what ifs as well as the when. Well, and I think like you said, having a plan that goes from what what am I gonna do in certain situations? Is it financial that I'll spend up to this amount of money, you know, and then make a decision and all the way through, um, all the way through disposal. Because I think sometimes too, we think of having a plan up to the point of making the decision about euthanasia and don't necessarily think about, okay, so now what do we do um, now that we have this large carcass? And, you know, in my opinion too, that plan should be revisited because um, I now own a four-year-old. Um, I would make some different decisions probably for my four-year-old than my previous horse uh, was 17 years old. Um, especially when you look at things like colic surgery and some of those things, I would, I would, uh, do things differently with a four-year-old and a 17-year-old and a 32-year-old, uh, like Krishona's experience. So it's not make one plan and that's the plan forever. Um, as things change, you might change your plan. Well, thanks guys. I really appreciate you sharing these maybe not happy memories, but it's good to, I think, have professionals share their real experiences with grief and making decisions. And these are things that affect us. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can have a conversation coming up in the future on some happy topics. Uh, so think of your, uh, your happy horse stories that we can share and uh, provide a little bit of education. So any final thoughts? I want to thank you, Chris, for having us to this. This is a really important topic. And I think one a lot of times people shy away from because it's, because it's not a happy topic. Um, but it's really, really important. So, so thank you for organizing uh, this podcast and, and approaching this difficult topic. Yeah, and, and I would just like to echo that. And honestly, I look at it as it was, I mean, it's not the most happy thing I've done, but I have a lot of pride in knowing that I gave my horses a very pain-free and dignified end. So to me, that makes me happy knowing that they didn't have to sit in some back 40 and starve to death because they weren't able to maintain weight. Um, or just continue to colic until they had a burst stomach. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of harder ways to go than chemical euthanasia that is, you know, proven, safe, effective, and, and relatively or actually pain free. So it's not happy topic. It's critical, 
but it does leave me with positive memories because I know in the end I did the right thing for my horse. That's so important. And it's part of our responsibility as horse owners. We're not only responsible for them on the good days, we're responsible for them until the end. Well, thanks for joining Extension Horses Horse Stories with a Purpose. And for more information on this topic, uh, as well as composting, end of life decisions, or any other horse uh, questions that you may have, visit our website, extensionhorses.org.